0: The date setting for this next story is important. I believe it was August 13th. Maybe it was August 14th. When I walked into the supermarket near our new home for the first time and saw a whole wall of this. Enough Halloween candy to choke a horse. And that was just one part of it that I captured. A whole wall of it. There was no avoiding it whatsoever. August 13th. Whatever you think about the consumption of candy, that's not what I'm talking about here today. I'm talking about the date. This is how I can tell I'm starting to feel old or at least older. Back in my day. <laughs> the celebration of <laughs> Halloween. It was like a week long and I loved it. I still love Halloween. Halloween. But good God, I thought, August 13th, October 31st, two and a half months of Halloween preparation seems to me a bit excessive. What are we racing ahead for? Where are we headed so quickly? And I know it'll come before this month is up, before September is even off the calendar, when we start seeing our first Christmas ads. Every year just keeps creeping, creeping, creeping earlier. It it makes me think that actually the most potent and the most controversial four-letter word in this culture is is not the one that begins with F that I said from this pulpit last week. It's here, as in being here, not elsewhere, but right here, right now. So another example of this yesterday in a, a home supply store, office supply store whole bank of hand sanitizers. And again, whatever you think of hand sanitizers, not what this is about, but with a big sign emblazoned over it, be healthy for the holidays. What holiday is the middle of September that we need to be healthy for? Rosh Hashanah. Actually, I grew up Jewish. I should know that exactly. But the point is that probably stays up all year long. What about being healthy for today? Here, so often, a four-letter word, just plain old common here, ordinary here, ordinary everyday here. That's what I want to talk about today. The ways in which really opening up to the ordinary here and the very ordinary now can reveal fantastic meaning in our lives. So this experience with the Halloween candy... It reminded me of a particular passage in Daring Greatly, Brene Brown's book that forms the core of this current message series that we're doing here at Wellsprings. And she's talking about a response to someone who raised a question in a public forum that she was in talking about. Oh, I mean, talking about things that make you sound real old, all the narcissism of kids these days, all the narcissism, all the look at me, all the selfies, all the lack of empathy. And actually, there have been a few studies that have talked about that, you know, maybe this is not a terribly empathetic generation. But Brene Brown pushes back against that. She says that, in fact, there's a wider culture that is grounded in a sense of scarcity, Emotional scarcity, not just economic scarcity, although it's part of it as well, too, but emotional scarcity that unless our lives are celebrated, our lives don't matter. And this is her one phrase that really sticks with me. There is all kinds of cultural messaging that says an ordinary life is a meaningless life. That an ordinary life is a meaningless life. She sees evidence for this all over the place, and I just shared a couple of them with you. Always looking for the high point, always looking for the holiday, always looking to be elsewhere, not here. And with this comes a sense of shame. If we're never enough, so many of us then find ourselves in competition for each other, not just with resources, but for attention and time and for something that actually none of us should ever be in competition for. But many of us find ourselves still in competition, which is our basic worth and our dignity. Leads to so much comparison. A sense that do our lives really match up, that maybe our lives don't feel like they're quite enough. This is something I shared with you about a year ago at a message series. And I could tell it really resonated with folks because I said, wow, that makes a lot of sense or wow, that makes me really angry. And so whether you like it or whether you dislike it doesn't mean it's not true. It's this. It's this uh, social science lab, the psychological lab at UC Berkeley, which has spent a lot of time investigating regularly, investigating this understanding, which is that if we find ourselves to be kind of at the top of the economic pile, or even if we perceive ourselves to be, it makes one thing very likely. It's not necessarily it maybe true for all of us individually, but it makes something in the aggregate more likely. We are a lot less likely to to recognize each other's lives, to actually literally see the other people who are around us depending upon where we think we are in the relative pecking order of our society. We know that economic inequality is expanding in the society, indeed, it's expanding all throughout the world. One of the definitions of sin that works for me, and sin is not a word I use from this pulpit very often because too often it has been used as a hammer. As a punishment for other people's lives who are not quote unquote like us who are different. But one of the definitions of sin that works for me is simply this sin is separation. Now, I'm not talking about getting distance from that which is unhealthy for us. That kind of separation is very healthy. I'm talking about the fundamental idea that we are separated out from our brothers and our sisters and from our common humanity sin as separation. I got a sense of this this past summer, the second week of my sabbatical. It was, I think, the week in which we actually had an honest to God heat wave in this very, very cool summer. And I was walking out of the apartment I used to live in, and it was like 95 degrees already in noon. And I was walking down the street, and I was already just like, you know, schwitzing, just starting to sweat. And I, for a, a little bit of the walk, I shared some strides with a guy who was working, physically working on the sidewalk, straightening out something that, you know, where the sidewalk was kind of crooked. And, you know, I knew how hot I was after just two minutes in this. This is a guy who's working outside like all day long. And I said to him, I hope you guys stay cool today. And he stopped. He turned to me. He said, thank you so much for that, sir. Now, this is a guy who's like at least a decade older than me. <laughs> so, sir, huh? huh? And then, as I continued my walk on, I said, oh, you're welcome. You know, it just seemed like an obvious thing to say. It's really, really hot out. He yelled back to his coworker, That gentleman over there said he hoped we stay cool. First thought. Not everyone gets a sabbatical, but everyone deserves a sabbatical. Second, I am so kind. I'm just so kind. Everyone should be as kind as me. (laughs) That thought didn't stay so long. I could be kinder. Because it was replaced by a third thought, which is the most resonant one, which is sadness. Sadness. That he felt it so remarkable that his work on this incredibly hot day was being recognized by another human being that he felt it necessary to yell across to his co-worker about this gentleman saying, I hope you stay cool today. How many of us feel like that? Especially those of us who may be the most vulnerable in this economy, in this culture, that our work, indeed our very being, our very lives goes unrecognized. This feeling of being unrecognized is rampant in our culture right now. And the response to this sometimes is anger, sometimes justifiable anger. But that kind of anger that festers tends to lead to disengagement. It leads to that sense of separation, even if it's not what we want for ourselves. We hear one of these voices of kind of separation from from this character who some of you might know. This character. Right above you, buddy. This character who of you know who, who that is? Not Brad Pitt. Who is that? Tyler Durden. That is Tyler Durden from the movie Fight Club. And what's the first rule of Fight Club? You don't talk about Fight Club. What's the second rule of Fight Club? You do not talk about Fight Club. We have a higher saturation point of Fight Club fans at the 11 o'clock service than we did at the 930. <laughs> I got some blanks to... Yeah, huh? uh-huh. You don't talk about Fight Club. And so even if many of you have seen the movie, I'm not going to give away the kind of secret about Tyler Durden, about Brad Pitt's character. But he says this at one point, and he kind of speaks for this sense of disconnect in our society, particularly with young men. I think it's one of the reasons why this has become a very famous and well-known movie. this kind of cult classic. Tyler Durden's character says we've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. Millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact, and we're very, very pissed off. That's that voice of that disengagement that Brene Brown talks about all throughout Daring Greatly. That if our lives, our worth, our dignity it goes unrecognized, the natural human tendency, even if it's not a healthy one, is to disengage and create a sense of separation, and to not honor that sense of connection. But we can listen to other different voices we feel disconnected, calling us into a deeper connection and accountability with each other. These ancient words from Jesus of Nazareth, which are very, very challenging, especially for someone like me who grew up affluent. These words, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Notice he didn't say, Blessed are the poor because they're better than all the rich folk. (laughs) Blessed are the poor for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Because whatever you think about heaven or the idea of heaven, if heaven's not a place, it's a state of mind. Heaven on earth, any heavens that might come. This is what I think Jesus is talking about. He's talking about connection. Again, keeping in mind that research that only maybe we can see now and prove empirically. Jesus saw just as clearly 2,000 years ago, which is that if we consider ourselves higher, better, above, separated... Heaven actually might be hell to us (laughs) because, you know, whether it's heaven on earth or whatever your belief is about what's to come. None of us, I think, absolutely knows heaven would be hell if you get there and you're feeling yourself separated and better than and you look around and you say. Oh, my God, they'll let Virginia in. (laughs) Who let them in? See, that's the promise of our universalist tradition, which is that we all belong originally and we all belong, period. End of sentence. Thinking in this way brings to mind something I posted on my Facebook page this last week, which a number of you really resonated with. I said it really reminded me about the lessons of Daring Greatly, of Brene Brown's book. It's from Richard Rohr, a Catholic contemplative, who begins, Most of us, he said, we're not raised to understand that we are participating in something that is already happening. I'll repeat that most of us were not raised to understand that we are participating in something that is already happening. And so we place this burden in a society on the single isolated person, which does not lead to participation. It leads to perfectionism that we have to do it all on our own. This impossible spiritual burden put on the separate individual. Reminds me of something that George Orwell said. George Orwell, who was not thought of as a spiritual teacher, but said a truly remarkable, insightful thing. It is, he says, a challenge. Always a challenge to see what is in front of one's nose. It's a struggle, he said, to see what is in front of one's nose. That's why, by the way, every week here at Wellsprings, We have that meditation that says, you know, encourages us one conscious breath. That's what all this stuff about spiritual practice is about seeing what is in front of our nose because it's so easy to disconnect. It's so easy to separate. It's so easy to treat here as a four letter word. We will move on to a different meditation reading and guide when we've all mastered breathing completely and being here completely in our lives. We will move on then until that point. We're going to keep coming back and back and back and back. So we see. And perceive and open to what is in front of our nose. This is where the healing will come in. In our society, politically, economically, socially, interpersonally, interpersonally. When we return to the ordinary. And don't accept those cultural messages that an ordinary life is somehow not worth living, that it's only if we're famous, only if we are fabulously wealthy, only if we're strong enough, thin enough, fill in the blank, whatever the thing is that you compare yourself to, the enough by which you judge yourself and tell yourself, I am not enough of that yet. The return to the ordinary is part of the great promise of our universalist tradition because it's ordinary as in common, as in what we hold all in common, as in in common between all of us, as in the love that is our birthright. The love that we are, if we cultivate it, and that makes us whole to deny the ordinary is to deny the full expression of our humanity. And sometimes getting all caught up in those cultural messages, we lose it. And so we have to listen to other voices that help us come back and back and back to where real worth and real value are found. Like in this poem from Naomi Shihab Nye, a a wonderful poet. She's talking about the relationship that truly makes things famous. And it begins with this line. It's longer than I'm going to read you. Go read it online. But it begins with this line. The river is famous to the fish. Think of that. The river is famous to the fish. And she continues, concludes I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile while crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in a way that the pulley is famous or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. This is the praise of the ordinary. This is daring greatly, which is not about grandiosity. It's about showing up for our lives day in, day out on all those ordinary days that just comprise, honestly, most of us, most of our lives. Just showing up to get beyond these cultural messages about who counts and who doesn't and to make the choices then aligned with our ordinariness and also our wonderfulness. I just made a choice like this. With regard to this guy, the captain, Derek Jeter, his long storied career drawing to a close. And those of you who don't know it already, most of you do. Yes, I am a Yankees fan. Some of you have forgiven me. Uh, Some of you are still working on it. That's your business, not mine. I was there when I saw him in his rookie season catching the last out of Doc Gooden's no hitter in 1996. I had a chance to attend Friday, Saturday, Sunday even. I'm not even preaching next week, so I could, like, you know, come up with a good way to maybe get away. I had a chance to go to his last series of games against the arch rival Boston Red Sox. I have a friend who has season tickets, but my wife and I are still finally, we're getting there, moving out of our old apartment in Chestnut Hill, and I had to make a choice between being a good fan and a good husband. And the only reason I'm telling you this is because I made the choice to be the good husband and <laughs> we have to move out together. There's a box in the back in which you can offer submissions for me to be husband of the year. But of course, no, I'm not. I'm just striving, as I think hopefully we're all striving to stay in touch with those ordinary responsibilities of our lives that do connect us to who and what we love. See, we can deny it, but none of us makes it through this life alone. It just doesn't happen that way. Even the most famous amongst us, one of the most famous people, Steve Jobs. Maybe you've seen this little image before. It's almost like a form of that uh, pointillism, pointillism. Steve Jobs is composed by all these images of what's made Apple. I don't care how creative you are, how genius level you are, how visionary you are. None of us makes it on our own. As James Luther Adams, one of the great teachers of the last century in Unitarianism said, there's no such thing as the immaculate conception of an idea. There's no such thing as the immaculate conception of anything. Everything is made from something else. There is no such thing as the immaculate conception of an idea. We pay attention and live in this way. We can resonate with what I think Desmond Tutu said. I'm only a person because of people. Think of the basic truth of that. We're all just persons because of people. This is the healing part of a wholehearted, daring, greatly life. It calls to mind for me again... Something that maybe we've moved on from a little bit but really did resonate with many of us because some of you told me really directly, I know it resonated with me and many of you told me how it affected you so deeply as well, which is Robin Williams' suicide. Not just his wonderful career but the obvious distress in which he died and how it gave many of us permission to start telling some of those stories of our own difficulties, of our own struggles with Mental illness or addiction or just the plain old toughness of being alive as difficult as this life can be. Now, you know, some have said, you know, well, you know, there's just collective grief for a famous person. We'll all move on. It's just all about celebrity. But it doesn't have to be. Not if we let this soft strength, this softening of our hearts and opening up to and with each other that can come from really telling the stories, showing up and letting ourselves see and be seen. One of the best responses that I read to Robin Williams' suicide was posted on the website uh, from On Being. Some of you might know that. It used to be called uh, Talking Faith or Talking About Faith. Sunday morning. Sometimes I listen to it when I'm coming here to Wellsprings. And the excerpt was taken from this book by, I think her name was Emily or Jessica Hecht. And her book is simply called Stay, which is a non moralizing, non shaming argument against suicide, which is to say an argument for all of us mattering and for life being of inestimable value. On being posted this, and I love these words. We can forget that we live in a web of significance and emotional interdependence with hundreds of other people. Sometimes the web is subtle, even imperceptible, but the web is real. We forget to thank each other for staying. We forget to thank each other for staying. People can feel isolated in their dark thoughts and difficulty, and learning that all of humanity suffers, at least some of the time from such thoughts, can help us to feel less alone. We forget to thank each other for staying. Thank you for staying. Thank you for staying. Thank you for staying. Thank you for staying. I don't want to be the only one saying it. Would you turn to the people seated next to you? Thank them for staying. Thank you for staying. Now here's the thing. Maybe you walked in here... Freaking on top of the world today, you know? It's all good, everything's great. Of course I'm staying, where else would I go? But you know what? Maybe you walked in here today not so sure that staying was the right thing. Maybe life is difficult. So thank you for staying. Scratch the surface of our lives. A big person, a big event, a big day. A big sorrow, a big happiness, a big joy. And we find that that big thing is comprised of so many little different things, just like that photo of Steve Jobs. And that anything big cannot be held aloft, wouldn't even exist without all kinds of ordinariness comprising it and supporting it. This is the path of true happiness and true fulfillment and true connection coming back to the ordinariness of our lives. It's something that Thich Nhat Hanh at his village, his plum village, his teaching community in France talks about five teachings, five core teachings on mindfulness. And one of those is simply called true happiness. I think if we want a source of a global ethic that really would change us and make us more kind and make us more whole and let us know how we connected we are, we should we could we could do a lot worse than starting with those five teachings from Thich Nhat Hanh and this one called true happiness. They vow and it begins with the individual. I will practice looking deeply to see that the happiness and suffering of others are not separate from my own happiness and suffering. That true happiness is not possible without understanding and compassion. True happiness is not possible without the ordinary. Without the basic facts of our lives. And in this way it may help to move us, turn us, rotate us away from something that many of us have ingested simply by being in this culture. Which is that... When we are special enough, then we will deserve love. <laughs> when we're fill in the blank enough, then we will deserve love. But our universalist heritage is something much more powerful and certainly more healing, which is that we are special in the first place simply because we are loved. That what we're chasing after to prove so many of us cannot be proved cannot be manufactured it is simply who we are george orwell is right stay in touch with what's in front of our nose the breath it's work and so i'd like to share something with you today That i'm going to ask you to do especially those of you who are on social media You can choose to do it. You can choose not to do it. Some of you are already doing it in various other ways, gratitude practice and stuff like that. But, you know, hey, this is about daring greatly. I don't know what's going to work. I don't know what's not going to work. But I wonder, as we stay in touch with our ordinary lives, if we might try using something like this. Hashtag ordinary praise. As you go through your day, again, if you're not on social media, do it anyway. Ultimately, it doesn't matter whether we post on social media. It matters that we're in touch with our lives. But if you are on social media, maybe try this. Today, the next day, the day after, get in touch with something deeply ordinary. Something that doesn't feel all that special, but something that is meaningful for you. And post it and talk about it for a little bit and just add that hashtag. Ordinary praise. Because so much of our lives is about chasing experiences chasing clinging running towards running away from but this is the gift of really being alive and awake and aware is that we get to experience our experience while we're experiencing it simple way of putting that is simply called here (laughs) we are here and we'll know that reality is always interbeing reality is always a transaction not as a commodity But reality is always communion. And maybe we might just know what it means that the river will be famous to the fish. Not famous with our name up in lights or because we've gotten that illusory enough. But we will know a deeper kind of fame. Which is that we are all loved. We all have value. And we all can be here. May you touch and taste and smell and sense that ordinary communion today. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit of already enough. Spirit of original generosity of this universe, of the preciousness of our birth and of the limitless nature of our hearts. May we know. Be wise enough to sense when the insidious messages of never enough and not good and inadequacy come knocking at our door. May we turn to those voices, those ways of being, bless you, bless all of us, that remind us the ordinary is where life is found. It's right here and it's right now, just as we can be right here And right now. May we praise the ordinary. May we praise the delicate embroidery of our lives. Stitch with spirits and grace and love. And from that beautiful cloth. Take on the form of our original wholeness. Amen.